Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. If you will take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 13 through 17. Those of you who are visiting with us, we have been going verse by verse through the book of 1 Peter for some time now, and our study brings us to this passage in chapter 3. Let me read this to you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so, that you suffer for, for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. I told you in the context that Peter is writing this letter to the believers that have been scattered throughout parts of Asia Minor that they are under persecution. Nero is most probably at this particular time accused the Christians of being responsible for the burning of Rome. We have a lot of historical things going on in this and uh, it's very possible that that all is around this very same time period as well. But the point is they're going through intense persecution, aggressive persecution. They're living in a hostile world and what Peter does in these verses is he gives them some comfort. He gives them some, this is what you need to do. He gives them some practical things that they can do in living in a hostile world. And I don't have to tell you that there's a sense in which you and I are facing similar, maybe not to the extent of. Other people around the world are, however, could look at what's going on in First in Peter and say they're experiencing that. In our country, we have not experienced that kind of hostility, this kind of hostility, but we are facing more and more hostility in our culture. We are quickly becoming public enemy number one uh, in the minds of some people because of the values we hold to, because of the things we preach and teach, because of the... Um, the more, the, especially the moral issues that our society faces and those we refuse. You know, you want to get along. Say so They say, get along. Can't you just get along? And um, we can't. We can't do that. I'll explain that as we go through this passage. We can't get, just get along and, and cave in to biblical truth. And the more we stand for the truth, the more we stand for godliness, Timothy says, you will be persecuted. And so we know that. It's kind of new for us because in our country we've had a reprieve for a few hundred years. Um, and like I said, not true in other countries, but in our country it's not been there that way. In fact, Christianity was kind of popular with the culture. Billy Graham and the Crusades and all of those kinds of things. We had a very somewhat uh, voice in society and what was, being, what was going on, what was being said and what was being decided. That is beginning to fade somewhat. And so the true gospel and Christianity are now becoming offenses against our society. 
This is a reality. Believe me, I wish I didn't have to stand up here and say these things to you, but this is the reality that we're facing. And we must look to God's word to understand how to respond. God does tell us how to respond. God does give us instruction. He does tell us in John 15 in the upper room, he says, they hated me, they will hate you. They persecuted me, they will persecute you. This, in this world you have trouble, but I have overcome the world. We used to read those verses and think, well, that's someplace else. But that's becoming more and more true of us. John 16, they will arrest you and they will take you to court and they will even take your life. These are things and realities. These are the things that are part of and the cost of following Jesus Christ. And so Peter is writing to believers. Look at 4.12. Beloved, verse 4.12, chapter 4, verse 12 of 1 Peter. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing is happening to you. Persecution for the sake of righteousness is what this is about. Because they've chosen to live righteously, because they are seeking to follow God and live for Him and preach His gospel, they are experiencing persecution. You remember, flip over to chapter 2, verse 9. I want you to see something. This is pointed out to me recently, but I also recall reading a book a few years ago that really highlights this truth. But in 1 Peter 2, 9, notice what he says to the believers there, quoting from an Old Testament passage, but he says this in 2, 9. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. Folks, those are words and terms that set us apart. Do you understand that? When you see chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that sort of distinguishes you from everybody else in the rest of the world, doesn't it? I read a book by Dennis Prager several years ago. Dennis Prager wrote a book dealing with why the Jews, a book about anti-Semitism, talking about all that was going on in Europe and World War II and all the persecution and the centuries that had led up to that and talking about all the things that brought about the persecution of the Jews. And this isn't the only thing, but basically it was their unwillingness to assimilate into the culture. Think about that. They had their strange way of dressing. They had their, their strange foods. They had their strange customs. They had their strange uh, rituals and, and ways of doing things. And people did not like that. They were suspect because they could not be absorbed into the culture. You see, that's, that sounds just too familiar. But when you are a people who are different, society can easily feel uncomfortable with you being there. And animosity and hatred grew to the Jews. And it's almost like you have a nation within a nation. A nation within a nation. Folks, we are citizens of America, but we are also citizens of heaven. 
It was like a nation within a nation. And we can't be absorbed or conformed to the thinking of this world. We can't be conformed to the world and its values and the things that it ascribes and proclaims. And it's not because we dress funny. Not all of us anyway. It's not, it's not that we have strange, strange customs. It's not any of that. But we just announce that we belong to God. That we are His people. We have a relationship with God. And unless you know Jesus Christ, you do not have a relationship with God. That kind of draws a line there. And we're, we're people that are living in a land where, with darkness. We have the light in, shed abroad in our hearts by the Lord Jesus Christ, but we live in a, a land of darkness. We live, we're the people of God living in the midst of people who don't belong to God. It's a nation within a nation. And for so long, that was not much of an issue. But now it's becoming more and more of an issue in our culture. It's like they finally heard what we've been saying. We've always been saying Jesus is the only way. That didn't offend too many, but now it's very offensive to say that. See, all of this sets the stage for hostility and persecution, a holy people in the midst of an unholy world. That's why look in, if you're still in chapter 2, look at verse 11. He calls us aliens and strangers. We don't breathe the same air. That's what an alien does. We don't breathe the same air. We don't think the same way. That's the culture that we live in. And, and it's interesting. What's interesting, and I've been pointing this out to you, has been going through this. We live in this world that's different. We live in this world that's the kingdom of darkness. And yet, we're to live in this world evangelistically. We are different, and we're to live in this world evangelistically. We are to reach the very ones who persecute us. You understand what I've been saying for the last few months that we've been in this book. Even though they are our enemies, even though they are our persecutors, we are to love our enemies and we are to reach the very ones who persecute us. That's our challenge. That's our challenge. We're, we're to seek to survive this animosity and this hatred that Satan has for us and using people to persecute us and at the same time, we're to convert the enemy. Wow. Wow. We're to convert the enemy to come to our side. See, we don't like a lot of things that are going on. We don't like the morals, the attacks on the truth, and the attacks on the family, and the, the perversion, and the escalating crime, and all the things that are going on. And we resent it. With a holy resentment, we resent it all. 
But we cannot cross the line. We cannot cross the line and let our resentment become a resentment to the very people that are being held captive by the kingdom of darkness. We can't resent them. That has been the tension of this letter. We've got to fight the enemy, but we've got to win the enemy. We've got to endure the persecution, navigate through it, protect our families, protect our church. At the same time, we've got to be a light of the gospel to the very ones who persecute us. Our persecutors are the mission field. And so how do, you, how do you secure yourself in this kind of world? That's what 13 through 17 talks about. I think it's very practical. Christians don't need to become fearful and Christians don't need to become anxious and angry and irritated and hostile. And that's what we're seeing a lot in a lot of corners of Christendom. Just a lot of fearful, angry, hostile Christians. I don't, I don't think any Christian is qualified to go out and talk about the cultural issues unless they're first grounded in 1 Peter. You follow me? I don't think you're really qualified to go out there and start having discussions, and those discussions need to be made on those secondary cultural war issues out there. We definitely need to engage in those, and some of you are very good at that. Some of you are, are knowledgeable in those areas and are, are better, at other, better than I am in engaging in those things. But the point is, unless you are anchored in 1 Peter, you're going to get out there and get mad and angry and resentful, and your pride will take over. And you'll alienate the very people we're seeking to win. You've got to be anchored in 1 Peter. You've got to. You've got to understand what it means not to revile in return. Not to treat your enemy the way he treats you. Or the danger is you will just go out there and you will fight the world with the world's tactics. So this is where we find our security. And it's in God's word and God's truth. And I, I want to say, we want to make sure this is true of us. First Peter, all of it, all of First Peter, really, but especially these passages we've been looking at. I want to make sure these things are true, that I have my footing in these things before I go out on the secondary interactions of the cultural wars. Because I don't want to just be fighting the way the world fights using their tactics and their techniques. So Peter writes, 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17, gives us four things here. Four things I'm just going to look at quickly this morning. Peter has been alive for a long time at this point. He is age, up, up in years, and uh, he has shepherded many people. Peter has been around. Peter has, has been in ministry and, uh, for a long time. And he has seen just about everything. So he knows what Christians face. And he knows the questions that believers have. And he knows how God wants his people to live. Peter is, is, was a disciple of Christ, leader of the band. You know his history. It's kind of behind his words here as he tells us how to relate to unbelievers and to deal with the persecution 
around us. Notice in verse 13, I'll say this one is, be zealous for goodness. Hey, don't, don't get all mad at everybody and stop doing good. Just keep doing good. Be zealous for goodness. See it? Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for good? This is an axiomatic statement, okay? This is an idea that is a truism. There are certainly exceptions to that statement that you read there in verse 13. Just read it. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Well, I know a lot of good people that got harmed, right? That's why you call it axiomatic. That's why you call it a truism. That's why you call it, this is a generally true statement. That's what this is. Generally, it is true that a person who is zealous for doing good is not the kind of person that gets targeted for harm. That's basically what this is saying. You just be zealous for doing good, and the world is slow to want to harm anyone that is benefiting society. Be compassionate. Be caring about people. Generally speaking, society doesn't harm people that are just trying to do good. A good life is, is hard to harm. So don't get bitter and defensive. And don't get scared and agitated. It's self-protective. Don't get angry because your freedoms are being affected and your comforts are being imposed on. Just keep doing what is good. Don't let all the persecution and the anti-Christian attitude overwhelm you and discourage you. And don't let it direct you towards seeking vengeance, returning evil for evil, but be zealous for good. Listen to this, 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul wrote this. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for another and for all people. All people. Zealous is the word that was used of the zealots. There was a zealot party, political party in in Israel, the time of Christ and, and before and beyond, but it, it, it was a party of very patriotic Jews who wanted to liberate Palestine from the Romans, and they would use any means they could to make that happen. They were passionate about their patriotism. They were passionate about their uh, wanting to see their political goals achieved. They were passionate about all of that. Paul is saying, he uses that word here for zealous. He is saying uh, we are to be absorbed in doing good. We are to use that same passionate intensity like these fanatical uh, patriots who love their country. We need to use that same fanaticism, that passion for doing good. He says in Romans 12, he says to, to your enemy is hungry, feed him. Your enemy needs clothing, clothe him. Heap coals on his head. Maybe it will bring him to conviction. That should be our response, not evil for evil. That should never be a Christian's response in any situation. Returning evil for evil. Seeking to get even, 
tit for tat. We've been talking about this for weeks. That is the thinking of the culture. That is the thinking of the world. That is not how a Christian thinks. It goes all the way down to marriage and other relationships. We are never to return evil for evil. Paul says you want to live a quiet and peaceful life. Let it be a life of good deeds. Just a life of good deeds. This this is how I respond. I don't just get angry and mad and fearful. I just keep being zealous for good deeds. Now, there are exceptions to this not being harmed thing, and that's why he has verse 14. Notice what he says in verse 14. But even if you should, see that? He recognizes that though they would have no legitimate reason to harm you, they may come up with a non-legitimate reason to harm you. But even if, there is a, there is a chance, per chance, there is a chance. Flip back over to 4.12 for a moment, 4.12. I read 4.12 to you. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. Notice as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not a strange thing. Suffering for righteousness is not a strange thing. That is what Christ experienced. That's what we're going to experience. Verse 13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. We share in the sufferings of Christ when we suffer. We've got to have a willingness, folks. You've got a willingness. When you sign on with Jesus, take up your cross. You know what that means? A cross is not a nice necklace around your neck. A cross is an instrument of execution. You take up your cross. It means you die. You die to you. That's what it means to follow Christ. In this culture, they understood that. Death. It could lead to death to identify with Jesus. We have not experienced that. Other cultures around the world are experiencing that right now. They're huddled in in, in churches worrying about extreme Muslim, Islamic extremists attacking them and killing them. You get Voice of the Martyrs. You get some of these magazines and you will understand everybody in the world does not live the way we live. Christians don't live. They're living in fear in, in, fear in the sense of that th- these things could actually happen to them. But that's what we sign on for. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Everybody is not going to like me. Everybody is not going to uh, agree with me and Jesus says, I came to bring a sword. What does that mean? I mean, a sword. I'm going to divide families. I'm going to divide mothers and fathers and, and, and children and their parents. It's a sword. The gospel does that. It divides. Look at chapter 2.21 of 1 Peter. For you have been called for this purpose. Why, why did you call me? Why did you call me, Lord? Why did you call me? Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. So don't think it's strange. 
You, can, you don't have to turn there, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Peter is, reiterates the Sermon on the Mount. I took you there last week on retaliation. I take you there again this morning, First uh, Matthew 5.10. Listen to this. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for, notice, the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. I think I think key in that is it's for the sake of righteousness. Now, if you get persecuted and you're, because you're a Christian that not did not pay your taxes, that's not being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. You understand that? You're, if you just do something uh, obnoxious and you suffer for it just because you're a Christian, that doesn't mean you're being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Talking about when you do something that God has commanded, something that is right in the eyes of God for the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel or something as right in terms of, uh, of telling the truth when a lie was possible or, or uh, taking a stand for a, a truth as opposed to uh, standing for something that was evil. Blessed is that person, he says. Blessed, happy is that person, that's the word. Happy is that person. See, see, here's the problem. If your heart, go back to verse 13, think with me now, back in, we're back in uh, 1 Peter. If you're in 13, if your heart is not zealous for good, for doing good, but instead your heart is zealous for the comforts of this world, and your heart is zealous for a life of ease, and your heart is zealous for having things go your way, then when persecution comes, man, you are blown away. You are blown away. It's like God threw you a curveball. You, you, you put yourself in a very vulnerable situation there when difficulties come. Because you don't see blessing in that. Your heart is attached to other things. And, and all you see is now this is something that's going to mess up my life. It's not blessing. Listen to the Phillips translation of James chapter 1. You know James chapter 1, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Listen to the Phillips translation. This is an English translation. Listen to this. When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Realize that they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance. But let the process go on until that endurance is fully developed and you will find you have become men of mature character with the right sort of independence. See, trials have a perfecting work in us. I, I don't know the why of persecution. I can't tell you the why of it, why God would allow us to have to go through this. I can just tell you he uses that. The purposes of that we see in several places in the Bible, but it, they wean us from the world. I can't trust in the world anymore. I can't depend on the world. Trials have shown me that I can't do that. So trials have a way of weaning me from the world and my dependency on the world. They have a, a way of driving me to prayer. They have a way of, of uh, drawing me to greater dependence on God, of humbling me, making me realize I don't have the resources in myself to do anything, and also they, they just make me able to comfort other people. I can find all of those points I just made to you in the Bible as purposes 
for trials. So, Peter knew about this. Go to Acts 5 for a moment. Acts chapter 5. Hold your hand in 1 Peter. In Acts chapter 5, this is Peter being called in before the Sanhedrin because he was preaching about Jesus. It says in chapter 5 of Acts, verse 40, it says they took his advice, meaning they took the advice of one of the former chief priests, I believe, or one of the teachers, one of the great teachers. After calling the apostles in, they flogged Peter and the others and ordered them not to speak the name of Jesus and then released them. And so they, the apostles, went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. And notice what they do. Every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They give you as a privilege, a privilege to suffer for Christ for the sake of righteousness. And I get it in Peter's context at this particular time in Acts chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' context of suffering and persecution was coming mostly from the religious establishment. The religious establishment was very much against this sect of Christianity. They were very much against the teaching of Christ. They were very much against the message of Christianity. And listen, we, we face that. We face the, the world's hostility on moral issues and values, but we face even from the religious establishment, if you hold to true biblical Christianity, you're going to face persecution. If you stand up and say the Bible is the authoritative and only word from God and of God, if you stand up and say that, you're going to get attacked. If you stand up and say that salvation is by grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone, and that all religions do not get you to heaven, you're going to be persecuted. And the biggest outcry is going to come from other religious people. If you want to invite a fight, just go ahead and proclaim that salvation does not come by baptism. Salvation does not come by confirmation. Salvation does not come by church membership or attendance. Salvation does not come by giving money or partaking of communion or keeping the Ten Commandments. That does not bring salvation. It doesn't come by trying to live according to the Sermon on the Mount. You say that in this culture, any of those things, you invite a fight. You say that philanthropy will not get you into heaven. Just being a good citizen will not get you into heaven. Salvation does not come by being born a covenant child or walking an aisle or, or baptized as a baby. It's not through Mary. It's not through the saints. It's, it's, it's not through sacra sacraments. And it's not by confessing your sins to a priest. This is... The word of God is our authority in all matters. Thus saith the Lord. We just figure out what it says and do it. And preach it and proclaim it. Salvation is by grace alone, faith alone, 
in Christ alone, and that is controversial, and that invites a response, and it's awfully from religious groups. You say, hey, salvation is not found in Islam, it's not found in Buddhism, it's not found in Hinduism, Seventh-day Adventism, Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, or New Age, you stand up and say any of that. It's not in the Catholic Church, it's not in the Baptist Church, it's not in the Methodist Church, the Episcopal Church, or the Lutheran Church. Salvation is not in any church. Salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. There's no other way to heaven. No other way. That's why I tell you most of the resistance and persecution that we have experienced has been from the religious establishment, and that was mostly what Jesus saw. It is moving into other secular sources, but it's not fully there yet. Go back to 1 Peter 3. He says this, and do not fear their intimidation. He says this at the end of verse 14. Do not fear their inter- int- intimidation and do not be troubled. So he says, don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. Don't be troubled. Well, how do I do that? How do I do that? And he says in the next statement, I believe this is part of verse 15, but see the word conjoins it together, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. This is how you don't fear, right here, their intimidation and are not troubled. You sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Some translations say sanctify God in your hearts. I think the majority would say it should be Christ. Sanctify Christ in as Lord in your heart. Sanctified means to set apart. Set apart Christ in your life. That's what he's saying. Set apart Christ in your life. In other words, have Christ as first place in your life. You want to be able to stand up to the intimidation and not have a heart that's troubled? Then set Christ apart in your heart. Let him be, notice, the Lord of your life. That's what that means. The center of your life. He has to have first place in everything. Everything. Your job, your family, your decisions. He should have first place in everything. Everything I do should be done with Him in mind. Does this please him? Not myself, not somebody else, but does this please God? Even how I view the persecutions. See, have you come to the place in your life where you're doing that? I said, I believe that many of you would say he is my Lord, but he does not rule in my life. Well, I think that's... I think he's Lord. Whether you acknowledge him or not, he is Lord. He's the one that's to be calling the shots. He is the king. He is the sovereign one. You bear the name of Christian, then we should represent him. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died for all, so that they who live might no longer notice, live for themselves. But for him who died and rose again on their behalf. He's to be the one we live for, not ourselves. Romans 14, 19, excuse me. When, when trials come, when trials come and, and fear seems to try to get at us, the security I have is he is reigning in my heart. He's reigning in my heart. 
He's allowed this. He allows this into my life. He's in control of what happens to me. He told me I would share in his sufferings. He told me that this is his will. Romans 14.9 says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. And Christ is Lord, doesn't matter what happens. It does not matter what happens. They can't take that away from me. Nobody can take that away from me. I'm secure in him. One writer said it this way, if a man's heart is set on earthly things, listen to this, if a man's heart is set on earthly things like happiness, pleasure, ease, and comfort, he is a man most vulnerable. For in the nature of things, he may lose these at any moment. Such a man is desperately and easily hurt. On the other hand, if he gives to Jesus the unique place in his life, the most precious things for his relationship with God, and nothing can take that away from him, and he is completely secure. Folks, he wants to be your Lord. He is your Lord. You must acknowledge him as your Lord. Go back to 315. Be prepared to defend the faith. See, if he's not Lord, then I I guarantee you something. You're going to be living according to your own understanding. If he is not the Lord... You will be living by your own feelings and emotions. You will be an unstable man in all your ways. Unstable woman in all your ways, if he is not the Lord. Sometimes the Lord may ask, sometimes, you know, sometimes the Lord will tell me to do things I don't want to do, guarantee you. I read the Bible and I get offended a lot because it goes against my flesh. But the third thing that we should be doing is be prepared to defend the faith, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. You need to know what you believe, my friends. We need to know what we believe. In this world that we live in, that we need to be able to articulate what we believe. Be ready to prepare and prepare to defend the faith and the hope that you have. The word, uh, the word that's used there, make a defense, that's the word apology. That doesn't mean in the Greek to say you're sorry for something. That's not the same idea. That's an apologetic. It's uh, to make a, spe- a speech in defense of. It's a word that an attorney would use to defend something. People like Josh McDowell and others were apologetic. It's not something to just professionals do. It's something all of us are always to be ready, Peter says, to know and state what we believe. I like the book that Ben was recommending, Christianity 101, something about Christianity 101, good book. Books like that, we recommend books like that, that you will be able to articulate what you believe. We live in a day and age where there's really no excuse for you as a Christian not to know what you believe. Listen, you have got access to so much information, internet and books, sermons, all kinds of things. You need to know what you believe. If you don't, you'll be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. If you don't, you will be unstable in all your ways. If you don't, you will, as I said earlier, live according to your feelings. And mysticism. There's a lot of Bible ignorance in spite of all this information that's available. 
It's not good enough just to be able to say, well, I believe this because it's what my mom and dad taught me. You've got to get past that. That may be good for your personal faith, but that is not a good way. It's not a good apologetic, not a good way to defend the faith. I'm not talking about being a theologian on every topic or get into theological debates, but know how to answer questions regarding your salvation. I think it's, we're just lazy about it. We're just lazy about it, and we don't make it a priority. Let Rod study all week. We'll just listen to him yeah, or something like that, you know, or Ben study or Doug study, whatever. No, it's all of us. We don't want to be ignorant. When the world attacks us, and it's going to, the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. I need to know what the Word says. The Word there, Word of God, is the word rima. It means, it means a specific word. It means I want to have the Word needed at the moment. That's how you use that sword. It's not a broad sword. It's a Micaiah, it's the, it's the sword that was precise and where it was aiming for. I need to know. Dawson Trotman said, uh, he, he was told by a pastor that the Bible has answers to your questions. Go and study the Bible. So he said, okay, the first time somebody asks me something I don't know, then that's okay. But the second time, I want to have an answer to that kind of question. And it doesn't mean I, it's nothing wrong with saying I don't know. It's just finding out for the next time. And we're not to just blast away. Notice the end of that verse. Gentleness and reverence. Gentleness and reverence. We aren't, if you get into arguments with everybody, it's, maybe sometimes it's because you feel threatened because you don't know all the answers, and that's okay. Just say, I don't know. Maybe sometimes you feel threatened, and that's because you haven't, you just need more time to, to look into it, to be more confident, and to form a conviction about it. And finally, maintain a good conscience. Let me say this in one minute. Maintain a good conscience. You know what your conscience is? It's a built in warning system. God has put inside every one of us a built in warning system that either excuses you or condemns you. It either tells you what you have done is right or what you have done is wrong. And a person with a guilty conscience is not a person that's going to stand firm very effectively. He says, and keep a good conscience so the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Let your behavior be above reproach. Let your behavior be such that when they make accusations, the words just simply fall flat because they're not true. Don't let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, but we're to keep our conscience clear. No guilt, nothing in my closet we answer their attacks. We've seen this already. We answer their attacks with a godly life that can stand up to the scrutiny. doesn't mean we're perfect. It just means when we have conflicts, we deal with them. It just means when we have sin in our life, we deal with it. It just means when we are, are, are getting tangled up in something, we get out of it. We, we seek help to get out of it. It doesn't mean we're perfect. 
The German philosopher said this, show me your redeemed life and I might believe in your redeemer. And that is a fair statement. Show me your redeemed life and I might believe in your redeemer. Verse 17, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Back to where we started. Doing right. Be zealous for good. Just go work all the way around in a circle. Be zealous for what is good. Embrace suffering. Focus on Christ. And be prepared to give an answer. And live your life with a clear conscience. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Thank you for telling us how to live in a hostile world. Thank you, Peter, for just... Nothing really complicated about it. But our tendency is to fall apart. Our tendency is to get angry and fearful. And no, this is what you do. And trust me, their persecution is a lot more intense than we face. It all starts with knowing Jesus Christ, my friends. You can't make him Lord. You can't do good, real goodness. You can't defend something you don't even know unless you know Christ. You can't have a clear conscience if Christ has not cleansed that conscience. You need Christ. If you're here this morning without Christ, our invitation to you is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and turn to Christ. He is the only way to God. As I read off to you those things earlier, there is no other way to God. And if you reject Christ, you face an eternity in hell. You will pay for your sin forever. Accept his payment for your sin on the cross. Put your faith and trust in him. Thank you, Father, for this time today. Thank you for your word. We just love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.